Okay, so let's look at Fundamentals of Kabbalah Part 2. So this one's the shattering of the vessels. Very famous term. You've probably heard of it at some point somewhere. Shvirata Kelim, the shattering of the vessels. And, and what does that, where does that go? What does that lead to? This idea of the shattering of the vessels. What does it really mean? So what we want to do today is understand this term, Shvirata Kelim. Where does it come from? What does it mean? And what does that have to do with our purpose here on earth? our mystical purpose, the purpose of our life. And that's going to lead us as well to understanding the whole universe, actually all of creation, the various dimensions of reality. And finally, going to look at the anatomy of the soul. Okay, what is a soul? It's not as simple as we often think. You don't just have like one soul. It's one soul, but it has many parts to it. So we have to understand the soul, the anatomy of the soul. So Shvirata Kelim, the shattering of the vessels. When God created the universe, how did it begin? Originally, there was just godliness, right? God is infinite. We don't know what God is. There's, nothing, there's no way to describe God. God is just infinity, whatever that is. We, are, we can only understand what is within the confines of our universe. And God is beyond that. So there's nothing that we can imagine about god really um so in kabbalah like god is often just referred to as ein sof just the which literally means without and the infinite god is just the infinite and at some point god willed it to create we're not going to talk about that specifically why that happened we can't know that but god willed to create if you remember from last week the first of the spherot was called ketel which is of its own willpower right the very first thing always is willpower and it's the same thing with god so god willed god had a will to create and the first thing that god did being this just infinite godliness the first thing is called tzimtzum maybe you've heard that term before tzimtzum means constriction so god constricted so to speak himself god made a space within his infiniteness within his infinity god kind of made a almost like a hole made space made a vacuum within himself and so this diagram is actually what this little diagram over here that's what it's supposed to show so he created a little space. That space is right here. The tzimtzum is right the point of this, of this onion-looking thing. God made a space within himself, a space of emptiness. And between the infinite godliness and this physical universe, this space, there are the ten spherots, which we discussed last week. The ten spherots are these, the interface between the infinite godliness, the Ein Sof, and our creation here in that little space, the Tsum, where we all exist, our whole, whole universe is within this little space. And the spherot are like the vessels that contain us, that separate us from the infinity that is beyond. So that's what this picture is showing, that you have, that you have Ein Sof, everything is Ein Sof, and then these rings are the spherot, and we are in this little hole, the Tsum. This is a very old diagram. This picture goes back at least a thousand years to some of the earliest published Kabbalistic texts. So we are here in the Tzimtzum. And then what God did was, of course, there was just an empty vessel. 
And then he filled that vessel with some of his light. Okay? A little bit of that infinite light was he shot down in this, what's called a kav, like a, a ray of light, a line, a ray of light. He shot it through down and filled that little space with godliness. So when the Torah says that God at the beginning, what's the first thing God created? After telling us that God created this space, it says that God made light. God, God said, let there be light. He sent light into the space. And everything came forth from that light. And we'll talk about in the future about Torah and science specifically. And science is really saying the same thing. If you've ever learned a little bit about the Big Bang, uh, creation according to science, it's saying basically the same idea, that the universe began with this expansion, this inflation of energy, of radiation, and everything condensed from that initial burst of energy, the smallest particles, electrons and then protons and hydrogen and then hydrogens crashed together and made helium and so on and so forth but everything condensed from that initial expansion of light heat radiation energy and the Zohar actually says amazingly the exact same thing there's a passage in from the Zohar says the exact same thing that modern science says in in detail it's really shocking it talks about the literally in these words in Aramaic though it says how everything was formed from the expansion of Zohar. Right? Zohar, that's where the name of the book comes from, the book of the Zohar. Everything came from the expansion of life. Zohar means radiance of radiation. So everything condensed from that initial radiation. So God filled the universe with light. However, when God first did that, the light was too powerful and the vessels shattered. So when we talk about Shvirata Kelim, this idea of the shattering of the vessels, it's actually talking about as if the 10th Sphirot couldn't contain that godliness. And the vessels shattered. And they shattered into 288 pieces. Where that number comes from, we'll see going forward. And next week as well, we're going to talk about it. And one way... Uh, one way to derive that number, by the way, is from the Torah itself. Everything, again, like we said last week, everything comes straight from the Torah. Everything. None of this is outside of Torah. Okay? So everything is derived from some kind of verse. So the Arizal explains that in the Torah, the second verse of the Torah, when God created the universe, says, that the universe initially was just chaos, emptiness and chaos, and darkness. And then it says, that the spirit of God was hovering. And the word merachefet, the, the deeper mystical meaning of what, what merachefet is, is it's the letters are met, which means dead, death. Rapach, rapach is 288. The letters, reish is 200, and chet is 8, and pe is 80. So merachefet is an anagram, can be read as met rapach, that it was like the death or the shattering of the vessels into 288 pieces. That's just one place where it comes from. Okay. And the idea, by the way, of originally, the, it's that when, when the Torah tells us that the world is tohu vavo, what it's saying is that the universe is in its natural state is chaotic, it's disorder. You remember your high school science, you know, the second law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy, that the universe always tends towards entropy, towards chaos, towards disorder. The universe wants to be in a state of chaos. Things naturally break down. 
over time, your room gets messier. Things fall apart. Things rust. Things break. Right? Things don't form. Nature doesn't create, usually doesn't create order. It usually tends towards disorder. So what the Torah is telling us in the first page in Bereshit is that originally the universe in its natural state is chaos and God makes order out of the disorder. It's actually a deeper meaning of why it says at the end of each day, Vayehi Erev, Vayehi Boker. So we read that like, oh, there was evening and there was morning. You know, that's cute. Evening, morning, one day, evening, morning, two days. But that's actually not what it's saying. You actually think about what it's saying. It's saying Vayehi Erev, Vayehi Boker means there was. Erev means chaos. It means mixture. Literally, the word means mixing, like just disorder. And boker means the other way. Boker means, if you look at the root words here, erev means mixed together. And boker means distinguished, clear. So in the morning, during the day, we can see clear things. We can see order. At night, when it's dark, we don't see order. It's chaotic. So that's the origins of the words. Why does the Torah say this on each day? Because it's supposed to tell us, it's telling us that there was chaos and there was order. There was chaos and God made order. There was chaos, disorder, and order. Disorder, order. One day. See, and it's telling us how God made ordered the universe from the original chaos. So that's the idea of Shvelta Kelim. So that originally the universe was unable to contain the godliness, the light, and it shattered into all these pieces. And those 288 pieces are themselves composed of billions and billions and billions and countless sparks, nitzatzot, sparks of holiness that have fallen into this lower world and they are everywhere. And so our spiritual purpose, our mystical purpose, why are we here, is to rebuild, is to repair this universe. Okay? To put those nitzatzot, to put those sparks of holiness back, to rebuild the spherot, to rebuild the whole cosmos spiritually. And we do that through, of course, through the Torah, through mitzvot and prayer, and blessings. So a simple example, when you eat, let's say, an apple, you take an apple and you say a blessing on it. And when you say that blessing, you are activating the sparks within that apple. There are nitzotzot in everything. And so you consume it and then through you, whatever sparks are in that apple are able to ascend back and repair the universe. Whatever sparks are lost in all things, in all matter, in water, in every in the soil, in all things, that's why we have mitzvahs in everything. Right? In Judaism, everything has some mitzvah associated with it. You buy dishes. What do you do with the dishes? You have to take them to the mikvah. So people say, what's, what's the point? So you're actually sanctifying the dishes. Right? In those dishes too, there are sparks of holiness in the ceramic and whatever it's made of in the glass. It was made from some sand. In that sand, there were sparks, right? So we free those sparks. We, you, 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 got you get clothing, you put on your clothes, you say a blessing on getting new clothes. You can elevate clothing. We have mitzvot associated with clothing where you put tzitzit on clothing. We have ways to elevate everything, to rectify everything in the universe. This is what tikkun olam means, actually. Today, tikkun olam is taken on a different meaning. You've heard this term many times, but tikkun olam, means rectifying the world spiritually. And that's why the Arizal says also that, that the Jewish people had to be exiled. Why do the Jewish people have to be exiled to every corner of the world? 
it was part of the plan because Jews have had to go to every corner of the world to free the sparks that are trapped in every corner of the world. So wherever you go. So whenever I travel, I always make a point. And you always, wherever you travel, wherever you are anywhere, it's important to do mitzvahs in that spot to, to elevate the energy that's trapped in that spot. I think also the Lubavitcher Rebbe, his vision for putting a Chabad house on every in every country, every city, I think on a mystical level, his intention was to rectify the entire planet, like to fulfill this mission of actually rectifying every space in the world, to make sure to free all the sparks, because only then will we have that perfect world that we want, that return to the Garden of Eden, a perfectly rectified world. That's our mystical purpose. That's the idea. That's why we are in exile where we are. That's why we need to be praying and saying blessings on food. So important before you drink, before you eat, to say blessings on food. There's a famous story of the Baal Shem Tov that he was once traveling with his students from one place to another in a caravan, long journey. And then suddenly he took a detour, told the driver to take a detour. They went like in the middle of nowhere, down into the forest, deep into the forest. And he came to a little stream. And he took a cup and took some water from that stream and said, so the blessing on it, drank it, and then went back to the coach, whatever, to the wagon and said, okay, now let's go back. And the students were puzzled and said, why do we just waste, took this whole long detour deep into the forest just for that because you needed a cup of water. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I sensed that in that stream that nobody had ever gone there and had ever said a blessing and had ever wrecked There were sparks there that needed to be restored. And no one had ever been there and had never drunk from that particular stream of water. So he actually specifically went there to do that, right, to free the sparks in that stream. So there's a lot of stories like that as well. That's Tikkunola. That's our spiritual purpose. <clears throat> um, and going back to last week, we saw we explained this, the tree of life, this picture here. And we talked about Chesed and Gvura. So Chesed over here and Gura over here on the, the right and left, representing the right and left pillars of the tree. And the Kabbalistic texts say that the universe shattered specifically because there was an imbalance between these two forces of Chesed and Gvura, of positive energy of kindness and of Gvura, which is the opposite of judgment and severity. And interestingly enough, just a little preview for next week, next week, part three, uh, it's going to be our last part, and we're going to talk about gematria and numerology, and numerology not just in Torah, but in the whole universe. Like, why is our universe so mathematical? Right? We live in a mathematical universe where you can define everything with numbers. Right? It's a fine-tuned universe. Why is that? It's a very puzzling thing, even for scientists. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Why is it that our universe is so perfectly mathematical? And the same way that our universe is mathematical, also the Torah is mathematical. So we're going to talk about the math and the, those hidden codes in Torah. And I want to do it specifically next week, not in two weeks, because right before Purim, because Purim is very mathematical and very Kabbalistic and mystical. So I want to share that before Purim so that you can see uh, the real, the Kabbalah of Purim, very deep stuff. So just a little preview for next week when we talk about Gimatria. If you look at Chesed, the numerical value of Chesed, Chet is eight and Samich is 60 and Dalit is four, is 72. And Gvura, Gimel is three, and Bet is two, and Vav is six, and Reish is 200, and He is five, it's 216. So 216 and 72, when you add Chesed and Gvura, you get 288. So just another, just to see where these numbers come from. We already saw how 288 comes from the verse in the Torah, Merach Chesed, 
and also from this and also many, many other places, which we're going to also see next week. Right? So there's all these mathematical patterns. There's not a mathematical perfection in the Torah as well. So because of an imbalance of chesed and gvura, the universe shattered into these 288 pieces. Now, what we're saying here is that our purpose is to rectify these energies, these qualities. And when they are rectified, they are reformed as we call them partzufim. Partzufim is like faces, okay, or expressions, facial expressions, expressions of godliness. And the ten sfirot are reconstituted as five partzufim. Okay, so ten is like in its raw state. And then five is when it's in its rectified state. Okay, and the five partzufim are the first one is called arichantin, which means the long face. Okay, we're not going to go into where these names come from. That's for another time, just as a general overview. So Keter, the first sphere at the top, when it is rectified, it, it appears, it expresses itself as what's called arichantin, the long face. And Chochmah, the second sphere, when, it when it's rectified, it expresses itself as what's called Abba, the father. We mentioned that last time, that Chochmah is a masculine quality. And Bina, the next sphere, understanding is a feminine quality. It's called Ima, the mother. So you have the father and the mother. And then the sixth sphere that follow, these are what are often called the Midot, the, the character traits that we spoke about last week. So they are called Ze'ilampin, the little face. And then finally, Malchut at the bottom is called Nukva, the feminine. So Ze'ilampin is known as like the masculine part, like the son, so to speak. And Nukva is the daughter. And so you have five of these Pertzufim. And together, you, you see the terminology is supposed to like tell us metaphorically that it, there's almost like a family, like a harmonious family that is rebuilt here. So you have God and the father and the mother and the son and the daughter. Okay? So this is just like another thing that Judaism is famous for its uh, emphasis on the family. The family is so important in Judaism, right? In your family. That is the first place where you can do tikkun olam, where you can rectify the world, right? People today, we live in a generation where everybody wants to fix the world. Everybody wants to change the world. Everybody wants to do tikkun olam. But Judaism is always saying that you can fix the world if you just fix yourself and your family. That's where you fix the world. If you think about it, that's actually one of the reasons why the Torah starts with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The whole world is Adam and Eve. There's nobody else. And it's supposed to teach us that a perfect world is where a perfect marriage, a perfect relationship, husband, wife, Adam, Eve, and Eve, that, is, that can be a Garden of Eden. That can be a perfect world in itself. And when Adam and Eve don't get along, then the whole world is destroyed. When you have a harmonious marriage, everything is like rectified in that. Then you have good children good qualities because where does evil really come from when you think about it right like why are there evil people in this world it comes out of the of something wrong in the upbringing right it's, it's, it starts from the home that's always been the jewish view and if, if the home would have been healthy then there wouldn't be evil right like evil people come out come from some issues they had some scarring whatever it is emotional psychological it all starts at home so if you have a rectified home, then you have rectified the whole world. And if all relationships, if all marriages were good, holy, proper, loving marriages with good, proper, holy, loving children, we'd have a good, holy, proper, loving world. That's the idea.
So rectifying the world starts with rectifying the family. And so we think of these Paltsufim as being like a harmonious family, as if it's like a father and a mother and a son and a daughter. So this is where this, this idea of five, this is where patterns of five in Judaism come from. So now you know why the Torah has five books specifically. Because remember, five represents rectification. So the Torah has five books because the Torah is the manual for rectification. Why doesn't the Torah have 10 books, right? If we have 10 spherot, why should, shouldn't we have 10 books of the Torah? But we have five books of the Torah corresponding to the five potsophim. The Torah is about rectification. So the Torah starts with 10 commandments at its very beginning, corresponding to the 10 spherot. But in its complete form, there are five books specifically. And in the same way, there are five levels to your soul. Corresponding to the five books of the Torah, the human soul also has five levels or five parts. The lowest level is called the nefesh. All these terms that we're going to look at, you've heard of these terms before. So we're just going to clarify what these terms mean. So the lowest level of soul is the nefesh. It's just life force. That's what makes things like animals have nefesh too. That's why Jews are not allowed to consume any kind of blood, right? Like, because the Torah says, Ki adam hu nefesh, or like in this verse here, Ki nefesh hu. so the Torah tells us on multiple occasions in many places that we, if we eat animals, we cannot eat their blood, right? We have to drain the blood first, it's very important, and then salt it and make sure all the blood comes out and everything. We are very anti-blood. Right? So it's one of the ironies of history. I don't want to get into it, but you know, you've all heard of the blood libel. And this whole horrible anti-Semitic thing. I don't even want to talk about it. It's just so absurd and so horrifying. But uh, it's, it's ironic because we are the people that are the most anti-consuming blood, right? Like we purify everything of blood. Like we don't want even a drop of blood. You know, there was once a famous case where the Jews in one particular community were accused of this. And they put the community on trial and they called the rabbi to represent the Jewish people. And he dispensed with the, the case very quickly. He said, go out to the village and bring any old Jewish lady that you want. Just pick one up. Doesn't matter who. And so they brought one. And he told, they told her, he said, have her just like make some eggs or something. Just bring her some eggs. Have her make. And everybody was like, what is this? What's going on? This is such a bizarre thing in the middle of a trial. And so she brings some eggs and then she starts making it. She's like, okay, well, I guess I have to do it. Whatever they're telling me to do. And she starts opening the eggs and checking them, right? And if there's blood, she throws them out. And then all the people there that accuse the Jews are like, what is she doing? Why is she throwing out perfectly good eggs? And the rabbi said, can you just explain what you're doing? She said, well, we are not allowed as Jews to consume even a drop of blood. So I check each egg. If there's even a drop of blood in it, I have to throw it out. It's not kosher. And so uh, that's actually how the rabbi, very, in a very clever way, saved the Jewish community at the time. Because then the judges and the people in charge realized that this blood libel is nonsense. Because Jews are very careful not to consume even a drop of blood. Right? So the Torah tells that even animals, animals have a nefesh, right? All animals, at least as long as they have blood, have nefesh. So the nefesh is in the blood. It's the basic life force. It's the lowest part of our soul. And so it corresponds to the lowest part of the sphere, malchut, which is rectified as nukva. And then above nefesh, above nefesh, the second level of soul is called ruach. Ruach is literally means spirit or like a wind spirit. So it's the animating spirit. Right? That's what gets us moving and going, and, and uh, it's associated with our vital organs. So usually 
the ruach is described as being in the heart, okay, also the lungs, the liver. It's associated with the vital organs. And again, this term appears all over the place in the Torah. Like, mikola basar bo ruach chaim. So ruach is many places where the word ruach appears. So ruach is a second level of soul. It corresponds to the next potsuf, the next six spheros above zeir and pin. And then the third level is called the neshama. Okay? Neshama, you've all heard. That's the most famous one because it's the most important one. It's the one that's spoken of most often in all texts, Kabbalistic or otherwise, the neshama is in your mind. The neshama is your unique you. Right? That's your, your, your main intellectual qualities. It's who you are. So it's in your brain, the neshama. And so like it says in the Torah, when God made Adam, that he put the neshama into him, which he didn't do with all the other animals. So animals don't have a neshama. Humans do. This is something that's unique to humans, a human soul that's associated with our mind. It's in our brain. Okay, so that corresponds to Ima, the next Potsuf Bina. Those three are the mo kind of like very important. And you, you, usually you, you see in mystical texts a discussion of these three Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, or they're often abbreviated as Naran. Nun Reish Nun. That's the three souls. Then above, there's two more souls, actually. Um, by the way, these correspond to various stages of your life. So um, a baby has nefesh. And it's, as it grows, it is growing in its ruach. It is getting more and more ruach. At bar bat mitzvah, its ruach is complete. Now it starts to grow in its neshama yeah, until about age 20. So in Judaism, a person is an adult when they are 20 years old. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, it's not 18. Like in uh, our civil law, you actually have to be 20. So if you ever see in the Torah, in the upcoming parshas, we'll see that. There's a lot of discussion of this, that a, that a person was only counted in a census if they were over 20. They could only be got, uh, conscripted to the military if they were 20. So 20 is the age where you are considered an adult. The Midrash says that Adam and Eve were created as 20-year-olds. So at, as from 20 on, you may have a neshama. You may, not necessarily. Uh, it requires development. So we all have all the levels of soul. The question is, are you, are you expressing that level? Have you accessed that level? Nefesh is a very animalistic level. Ruach is a little more. It's associated with our emotions, right? The heart. Neshama is mental. So if you think about development, human development, right? A baby is basically an animal totally selfish like it has no doesn't care about anything it doesn't care uh, about its parents well-being sleep nothing it just it, what, whatever it wants it's all instinct right and then as it grows though the baby it learns it starts to acquire more ruach more emotion slowly slowly understanding right and then barbat mitzvah they're already have that refinement now they're starting to develop in their neshama right so teenagers their main struggle is with all of this the balance between the mind and the heart, right? Their brain starts to develop in new ways and they're struggling with dealing with all these emotions now and so on. And the brain continues to develop even once a person's past 20 because the neshama continues developing. And so it's all, and then at age 20, a person who is at the highest 
level of development would have their neshama accessed at age 20. Most people today don't. Right? So Kabbalistic texts talk about that, that a lot of people are stuck in nefesh level their whole life. Right? Some people live like animals their whole life. They never actually grow out of that stage. It's all just me, 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 selfish, my desires, food. Right? They never actually grow into any kind of emotional or intellectual maturity, unfortunately. So our job is, of course, to keep developing at these levels. And a person is com considered having completed their personal rectification when they fulfilled their neshama level. Beyond that is more like optional. So the fourth level, we all have it again. Everybody has these levels. It's just the question is, are you accessing those levels? Okay. So the fourth level is called chaya. Like it says in the Torah, adam nefesh chaya. And there's many places where that word is used also in a more spiritual context. So chaya is often in, in some texts associated with the aura of a person, meaning the soul that kind of grow that comes out of you, that glows out of your body. And that corresponds to the next paltuf, aban. So chaya is the fourth level. And then the fifth and highest level is called the yechida. The yechida meaning the, the singular, the unique, the, the oneness. So that part is almost like a divine umbilical cord. Like that's the part that connects you directly to the heavens, to God, to Hashem. It's the highest, most sublime level of the soul. So King David says in Psalms, uh, he asks Hashem, So save my yechida. Right? He's saying, save my soul, my nafshi and yechidati. So this is just one place where these terms appear. Again, we, we want to show how all of these things come straight out of the Torah. So that people don't think that Kabbalah is something distinct from Torah. All these things are based on Torah verses. And so these five words appear throughout the Tanakh, referring to different levels of soul. So if you ever wondered, what is the difference, right? When you read the Torah, sometimes it says nefesh, you look at the translation, soul. Ruach, you look at the translation, soul or spirit. Neshama, you look at the translation, soul. Yechidati, soul, right? The English translation is always soul or spirit. But of course, each of these terms has actually a unique meaning. Okay. So those are the five levels of the soul. And the chaya and the yechida are like on a much higher level. And so most people will never access, no, never really access those. But we all like experience it, you know. So for example, um, the chaya, you know, sometimes like you're around another person and you get like the wrong vibes from them. And it's not necessarily because they're bad. It's just, it could be just that your chayot don't get along so much. Like each of your auras is not, is somehow antagonistic to the other. And so you can both be really excellent people, but sometimes you just don't connect with a certain person. So that could be the chaya interacting. You don't know why, right? You don't like, you don't understand. It. Some people who are on a very refined level can actually see that. So somebody like the Arizal, where most of this information that I'm presenting to you is coming from, he could see people's auras, right? And he could sit, feel, and he could sense that this is what you're missing. This is what you need to rectify. He would tell people based on their glow. So he was sensitive enough to be able to perceive that in other people. These are the five levels of the soul. And corresponding to those are the five levels of reality. The five universes, they're called olamot, the, the worlds or universes. And just like the soul, they're all superimposed on each other. 
So we inhabit the lowest universe called Olam HaAsiyah, the world of literally action. Asiyah, creation, action, doing things, the physical world. Again, this comes from the Torah, from, from the Tanakh. There's a pasuk. This is just one of them. So this, this pasuk is actually where all these terms of the universes come from. That God, God is saying that everything that I created, and he says, If you read that in English, it seems repetitive. It's like, I created it, and I formed it, and I made it. That's literally how it would be translated. Barativ, I created it. Yetzartiv, I formed it. Asitiv, I made it. In English, it kind of sounds like, oh, what's the difference? Is God just being poetic, redundant? What, what does that really mean? So it has a really deep, every pasuk, every verse has a very deep meaning behind it. So what, he say, what, what God is saying here is that actually creation exists in various levels, various dimensions, all superimposed on each other. The lowest is the world that we see. The world of Asiya, that's the, the physical world around you, the lowest level. Above that is Olam HaYetzira. Yetzira is the world of formation. This is the realm of, again, superimposed upon our own. This is where you would see spirits and angels and things like that. So angels, as we read in the Torah, have the ability to migrate between these dimensions and worlds particularly between Yetzirah and Asiyah. They can come into a physical form. But usually they are unseen to us. They are in Olam HaYetzirah, which is superimposed above our own, but we can't see it. Just like our, like our eyes, you know, scientifically speaking right now, can see a very tiny sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? If you ever look at the electromagnetic spectrum, the visible light spectrum, it's a tiny... It's like a small range of like whatever, 400 to 700, something like that, nanometers, very tiny, tiny range of what we can really see. Most of the electromagnetic spectrum is completely hidden from us, right? We can't see radio waves. We can't see x-rays. We can't see microwaves or gamma rays or anything. We can't see most of what's going on. We cannot see, right? The room that you're sitting in right now is full of all kinds of other stuff, radio waves flying through and all kinds of things, microwaves. We don't see any of that. We just see visible light. So God gave us very small range of vision, also hearing. Right? We can hear very little and smell very little. Um, dogs, for some reason, have a lot better hearing and smelling. And other Animals, often God gave animals senses that we don't have. Right? It's like butterflies and bees can see in ultraviolet. Right? They, to them, flowers look very different into us more magnificent and certain animals can see in infrared and we can create technology to see in these things right so we make infrared cameras and x-rays and machines that allow us to see in other to visualize these things that we otherwise can't see or hear or whatever so that's yetzira. it's a world that's a here but we just can't see it with our limited senses most of us can't but a person who is again on a very refined level somebody like perhaps a prophet or something like that or it doesn't have to be a prophet necessarily, but somebody on a very refined level could see Yetzira and this beings that are in this world. So again, it comes from this verse. Okay, Asitiv, Asiyah, So based on that, you should already be able to predict the next world. What's the next world called? If you have Asiyah and Yetzira and 
בריאה, בריאה, בריאה. So בריאה is the next level. That's what I, I usually like to call just the code of creation. Even above the angels, something that most of the, even the angels can't see, which is the very code of this universe, the encoding, the math. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Okay, so next week is the code of the universe. And I think the best analogy is the Matrix. If you've seen the Matrix, one of my favorite movies, very mystical, uh, a lot of mystical ideas in that. Maybe we'll have a session on the Matrix one, one day soon in the future. So if you remember in the Matrix, if you've seen it at the end, Neo finally sees the world for what it really is, right? He sees the code. So this famous picture from the movie, he sees the code that's behind, you know, the, the facade. He can see through, he can see behind the scenes of the, the Matrix. So he can see what the world really is. He's seeing the code and then he learns to hack the code. That's really what a Jew is. A Jew is supposed to be like Neo. To, to, to get to the point where you can see the code in the universe and, uh, and then repair the universe. That's what, that's what Neo does in the movie. Um, and uh, Rav Shnur Zalman of Liadi, who was the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, so we all know the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, was uh, Rabbi Shnur Zalman of Liadi. And so one of the fascinating things that we see in his writings, actually, in his, one of his letters, that before he passed away, he wrote this letter, and he, he writes there, uh, he writes to his grandson, he says, I no longer see a table, a chair, a lamp. He doesn't see this, what we see. He doesn't see olama siya. He says, I only see the letters of the divine utterances. So before Neo saw it in 1999, back in 1812, the Alter Rebbe, he's called, the first Rebbe of Chabad, already said this. He wasn't the only one. I just like this particular quote. These kinds of things, uh, these kinds of words are found in other places in our sages. But the fact is that he no longer saw what, what an average person sees, like a table, that's a chair. He saw through beyond that. He saw the letters of creation, the code of, of the whole universe. So that's the world of Bria, even higher level. And then the highest, or at least, let's say the highest, the highest level is called Atzilut, or, or also called Kvod Hashem, the glory of God. And that's, again, from the Pasuk, Kol Bishmi, Lichvodi, so corresponding to that word, So the glory of God is just, that's the highest dimension. Again, this is all superimposed on us, right? So we have Asiyah and Yetzira, and Beria, and the highest level is just seeing the oneness of everything, just seeing that divine, infinite, Ein Sof, infinite light, God's energy. Make sense? Now there's one world left. Usually, if you're reading Kabbalistic literature, the discussion is about these four worlds. Asiya, Yetzira, Beria, and Atzilut. But then there's actually one world on top because there's five books of fame and five books of the Torah and five souls and everything that's rectified, everything that has rectification has five levels. So there's one more level. Can I ask a question? Yes, go um, ahead. I, you might have gone over it and I'm sorry if I missed it. Um, I have heard a Kabbalistic view that this, the physical world, world is uh, the Malchut is the 1%. 
and everything else is the 99%. How, what's your take yeah. on that? Accurate. I agree. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, okay. Yeah. Uh, that's true. Yes. Well, obviously, like, I mean, the world that we inhabit is just a tiny speck of what's really going on out there. Right? Even if I can bring an analogy from science, the visible universe only accounts for about 4% as estimated by scientists of the actual universe. So everything that we can see, uh, all the matter that we look with our telescopes and look in space, uh, scientists estimate that that's only 4% of the universe. The other 96% of the universe we cannot see. It's what scientists describe as dark energy and dark matter. Okay, so these are things that we can detect. We know that they are there, but we have no idea what they are. Right? We know that the universe is mostly that stuff. So like 96% of the universe is dark matter and dark energy, which we can't see. And we don't know, really, we don't know much anything about. Right? So we can only really, all that we've done, all of our science is mostly just dealing with that 4%. That's the visible universe. So in the same way, spiritually, it's like that too. Uh, that this lower world that we are in is such a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of what's really going on. And uh, one thing that I like, uh, there's um, in there's two 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 ideas here that I want to share. One is it says in Masechet Brachot in the Talmud, very famous passage where the Jewish people are crying out to God, saying, you know, you've abandoned us, you know, in exile, we've been, we've experienced so much suffering. And God replies and says, my children, you know, I created so much for you that you just don't even see it. But the reward for you is so great. And over there, God says what I created for you. And he says, he basically outlines the universe, says I created this many worlds and this many constellations and this many galaxies and this many and so many. It's, it's a very famous passage. If you add it up, it actually gives you a number of stars that's very similar to the number that's estimated by NASA in terms of how many stars there are in the universe. So depending on which opinion you look at, in scientific opinion, it's somewhere between 10 to the power of 18 and 10 to the power of 21 stars in the universe. And if you take that passage from the Talmud 2000 years ago, if you calculate what it says there about how many stars there are, and multiply everything, it also gives you that roughly that same number, about 10 to the power of 18, 10 to the power of 21, depending on how you do the multiplication of those words. So the, our sages already knew that the universe is just vast, is massive. And the question is, why did God create such a massive universe? What is the point, right? Like we are this tiny earth and there's like eons of billions of light years of space out there with hundreds of billions of stars and planets. What is the point of all that? And so the Talmud says that God actually created it for us, for human beings. But, but we're confined to this planet right now. And then there's another Talmud. Actually, it's, it's in many places. This idea, it's in the Zohar, it's in the Talmud, that every righteous person in the afterlife, whatever that means, receives shy olamot. Shy is 300. Shy means gift. Okay? And the numerical value of the word shy is shin is 300 and you just stands 310. So the sages derive that every person every righteous person in the afterlife gets a gift of 310 worlds if you put those two together i think uh there's a very interesting possibility 
right? So if God is telling us in one place that I created this whole universe for you, you don't know it yet, but I actually created all these stars and planets for you. Okay, you're right now, you're confined to earth and you're just like, oh, what am I doing here? But he's saying, I actually created this whole universe for you. And another place, he's saying that each person gets 310 worlds as a reward in the afterlife. So we generally, like, we explain these spiritually. We explain these Gemaras by saying, yeah, you know, you get 310 spiritual worlds, you know. But why do they have to be spiritual? What does that mean, spiritual, right? If we're saying that all these worlds are superimposed upon each other, it's one creation. The Tzimtzum that we talked about at the beginning includes all created things, physical and spiritual, angels, humans, everything. Everything is in that. So uh, if you see where I'm going with this, you can connect the dots that perhaps in the future, we will be able to traverse the stars and each one of us will have 310 worlds of our own to explore. Can you imagine that? Thank you. So, okay, so the fifth and highest level is called Adam Kadmon, which means literally the primordial man, the first man. So... Adam Kadmon is a really very complex idea, very, very hard to understand. And it's such a huge topic. This is just a tiny, just very little introduction to this idea. When, when, when the Torah talks about the, that God created us in his image, what it's really saying is this. It's, it's talking about this idea of Adam Kadmon, of the original light, the original will of God. Remember, this corresponds to Ketel, to the divine will, the divine vision, like the original vision of God is this perfect man this perfect divine a human basically like a lower form okay, that god wanted the midrash says to to bestow his goodness to lower creatures and he wanted other th other lower creatures human beings to be like him okay so he made us in the image of god we are supposed to be like Adam Kadmon, like a reflection of God in this world. God's original intention for how man is supposed to be, which is a transcendent being, a being of light. So that's what brings us back to our purpose, because the Torah says over and over and over again that our purpose is to be like God, be godly. That's what the Torah is always saying. Talk, speak to the children of Israel and tell them, You be holy because I'm holy. You need to be like me. That's the whole point. Our job is to be like God. God wants us to be like him. Yeah? That's our ultimate purpose, to become godly, to become as refined and as holy as we could be, to be like God to ascend to that level of Adam Kadmon, to go up through all these realms and to be to bask in godliness. And the Mishnah says, one of my favorite psukim uh, from the Mishnah, from Pirkei Avot, make God's will. Like, you make your will God's will. Align your will with God's will. Make his will your will. And then God will make his will like your will, because your wills have aligned, right? When you do what God's will, when you do that pure goodness and kindness and holiness, you align yourself with God. And then God aligns with you. And then you become one with God. But nullify your will before God's will. 
and then that he will then nullify the will of others before your will. You become godly. And that's the whole point. And remember, will, ratzon, is the first sphira, right? It's keter, it's at the top. That's Adam Kadmon. That's the highest level. That's what it means to be like the original primordial man, the original intention. How did God want man to be? To be in the image of God. That's what it means to be in the image of God, to be like God. Not to be like an animal, to be like God. So to summarize, I just took this picture from my website. That's why the website's here. Uh, to summarize, we have five levels of soul that correspond to the spherot in this way, that correspond to the universes in this way. And all these things correspond to God's name because God's name, yud Hey vav Hey Hashem, is supposed to also teach us these things. That's like the holiest name that there is. It, it encapsulates all these secrets. It holds all these secrets. So the name of God actually alludes to all these things. The last hey of his name is the asiyah malchut nefesh, the vav. Vav has a value of six. So that's the six midot, ruach yitzira. The hey, the two hey's, if you notice, correspond to the two feminine aspects, malchut and bina. Hey is considered a feminine letter. Vav is a masculine letter. And the yud, that really high transcendent yud, the only letter that floats up above into the air when you write Hebrew. So the yud corresponds to the highest levels at silut chaya. And finally, the crown of the yud, because when you write God's name, the yud has a little a tag, you know, a little crown. That's the highest level. Adam Kadmon So that's the map. Like that's how all these things correspond to each other. Okay, so the five parts of God's name, the five books of the Torah. This is why, by the way, there's five things that we don't do on Yom Kippur. You know, Yom Kippur is about purifying our soul, right? And so you have five levels of soul. Now you know why there's five restrictions on Yom Kippur, right? The not eating and drinking and not sandal, not wearing leather shoes and uh, not anointing yourself and bathing and intimacy with your spouse. So there's five restrictions corresponding to the five souls. Each restriction purifies one soul because Yom Kippur is about purifying your soul. And there's five prayers on Yom Kippur, right? It's the one day of the year where we pray five times. Usually we pray three times. On Shabbat and holidays, we have four times. And on, only on Yom Kippur, we had a fifth prayer, Ne'ilah. So you have all five prayers. Each prayer corresponds to one level of soul, corresponds to one universe. You can see how it relates to, you see how everything comes together? So everything in Judaism like makes sense in light of Kabbalah, right? In light of mysticism. That's where everything is built on these ideas. That's it for part two. And we'll continue next week. Uh, if you have questions, I'm happy.